Do you, Chris, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you promise to barrage her with obscure facts concerning comics, movies, TV shows, and toys? I do. And Cindy, do you take this man-child to be your lawfully wedded husband? Do you promise to humor him by engaging him in his obsessive ramblings, for better or worse, in pre-crisis or in post? Sure, why not? Then by the power invested in me by the High Father of the Fourth World, I now pronounce you Supermates. You may podcast with the bride. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Supermates, a husband and wife geek cast. I'm Chris. I'm Cindy. And the hot one. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Way to, way to get me flummoxed right from the get-go. Um, and today we are going to talk about Starman. So this is going to be part three of our Starman Chronicles series where we cover the James Robinson, Tony Harris Starman series, which began in the 90s. And actually, uh, I just want to say uh, to my friends Shag and Ryan Daly, uh, suck it. Because <laughs> this is a Starman episode. And uh, uh, Shag, uh, when's the last time was that there was a Heroes Point episode? I'm just saying. I mean, I seem to recall... You had a series within the Fire and Water podcast called Hero Points. It was a superhero RPG podcast, and you've done like two episodes in like two years. So, glass houses, buddy. So we're gonna cover. <laughs> You're so bad. We're not. We're gonna cover five issues of Starman this time because I got to looking at it and the way the series as rolls, far as story arcs, right. This is kind of an in-between phase for the comic. The next big storyline will happen. We will cover that in our next Starman Chronicles episode, which will not be next episode, but will be down the line somewhere. But to get to that point, rather than have a, a two-parter here and a three-parter there, it's decided, let's just do all five, because they do all kind of tie together. Yeah, they all And they reference back to each other, and I thought if we... If we break them up, we're going to lose some of the continuity. Mm-hmm. Especially where there's going to be some spa- some spacing. I hope that's okay. Yeah, right. Some spacing. But because of that, we will not be doing feedback as promised. I'm, I'm sorry. We won't be covering feedback this time. But well, I promise we will cover feedback next time. And uh, next episode, I'm not really going to tell you what it's going to be. It's going to be a surprise. But it will have feedback and another component. Which, if you've been paying attention, you might know what that is. Because we kind of dropped a hint about it. Several episodes back, something that's been recorded for a while, but uh, that's all I want to say about it. Uh, but before we get into Starman, I just want to say that uh, Cindy and I were uh, very, uh, very happy to join in on a conversation about the new Supergirl series the night of, but after the, the show mm-hmm. aired. Michael Bradley uh, of the Superman and Batman podcast had us on along with Professor Allen and Emily Middleton. And of the Relatively Geeky Network, and Bob Fisher of Superman Forever, and Michael Bailey of Views from the Long Box, From Crisis to Crisis, and various other awesome podcasts, and we discussed the Supergirl pilot. That is over on the Superman and Batman feed or at greatcrypton.com. Uh, we had a lot of fun talking to those guys, so... Uh, it starts out with just me, and then you join in. You yeah. kind of you kind of replaced Michael Bailey because he had to leave to go do Radio KAL Live. Well, and I thought you were making a 
snarky comment to me, and I was like, oh, hell no, you're not doing that, and I jumped in. <laughs> I really in wasn't. My honor. I really wasn't, but you thought I was, and then I had the headphones on, so she couldn't hear what, she could only hear what I was saying, not what everybody else was saying, so she had to jump in and put the headphones on, so, because we were Skyping, but, um, yeah, so, so Cindy joins in about halfway through, but. But to, like I said, you, it was kind of cool because it, you, you just happened to come in right as Michael Bailey was having to leave. So there you go. So it worked out really well. So, yeah, definitely check that out. Superman and Batman's always a great podcast. But uh, but uh, we really enjoyed the Supergirl, the pilot. As oh, we record wonderful. this, it's just been the first episode. Right. Uh, so we really don't know, but it's off to a great start. So mm-hmm. so let's jump in and talk about Starman. So we're going to start with Starman number seven. I need to drop in that little Starman intro thing. I forgot about it that I did last time. I might drop that in, but anyway. In the Golden Age, amateur astronomer Ted Knight developed a device that harnessed stellar energy. He used that device, eventually dubbed a cosmic rod, to battle crime in Opal City and beyond as Starman. Decades later, an aged Ted handed the mantle to his eldest son, David, who was murdered shortly thereafter. It then fell upon the youngest son, Jack Knight, to take up the rod and forge his own destiny as his own brand of Starman. So we're going to start out with Starman number seven from May 1995. According to Mike's Amazing World, it was on sale March 21st, 1995. And the cover has a painting by Tony Harris. It shows Jack Knight in the center, his cosmic rod in hand, with stars emanating from the glowing tip. He's surrounded by a floral design with vignettes of a mustachioed man with a cigar and a pointing finger, a woman with octopus tentacles for arms, and a human-fish hybrid, and a large brutish man in a black bowler hat. So, there you go. Uh, the story is entitled A Night at the Circus, and like I think I've mentioned before, Robinson really liked to be punchy with his titles, and he calls it A Night with the K in parentheses. Mm-hmm. So it's like as in Jack Knight, but it's A Night. So it's like, how do you say that? I Tonight at the circuit, I don't know. Yeah, all right, you know. But anyway, you get it. Uh, writer, James Robinson. Penciler, Tony Harris. Inker, Wade Von Graubadger. Let's say it again, Von Graubadger. I like saying that. Uh, letterer, Jay Workman. Colorist, Gregory Wright. Assistant editor, Chuck Kim. Editor, Archie Goodwin. Jack Knight observes that Opal City has no suburbs. You're in the city? and suddenly you're in Turk County. Jack travels to Turk County in his modified army medic truck in search of treasure for his shop, Knight's Pass. Although he always finds great collectibles for a fair price, there's something ominous about Turk County. Jack feels uneasy around the country folk as he barters for a Hopalong Cassidy memorabilia collection and old phonographs. A man offers to give away his mother's Fenton glass collection. This man expounds about how he hated his mother. Jack can't help but think of how that man may have murdered her. He thinks of the classic painting American Gothic by Grant Wood and the strange couple depicted in that piece, how they seem to be hiding something. Always expect the unexpected in Turk County. Jack definitely finds something he didn't expect, a circus. He stops at the circus carnival, the first he has visited since his childhood, since shortly after the death of his mother. A fan of Todd Browning's disturbing film Freaks, Jack is drawn to the human oddities. He passes the poster for Max the Nazi doll boy, but enters the display for Finnegan the fish boy, who appears to be a human-fish hybrid swimming in a water tank. Then he gawks at Octavia, a woman whose arms and legs are actually tentacles like an octopus. 
As he walks away from her, Jack doesn't notice Octavia calling his name. He instead journeys to the tent marked Cosmic Geek. Inside stands a thin man with blue skin, chained to a wall. He holds a cape about him, and on his chest there appears to be an eye-like medallion embedded in his skin. There is an awkward silence between the two, and then the blue man reaches out toward Jack and speaks in an alien tongue. Jack reels back, his mind somehow touched by this cosmic geek. He runs through the fairgrounds, seeing distorted visions of the freaks he has witnessed and snippets of what appear to be moments from the blue man's life. Later, Jack visits the office trailer of circus owner Mr. Bliss, a man with wild receding hair, a mustache, and a taste for wine and cigars. First, Jack asks him if he has any circus items he'd like to part with. Then he inquires about the blue man. Bliss assures him that he is no prisoner and is in fact a showman named Greg Bailey. Jack was simply the victim of Bailey's new enhanced act. Bliss asked his large servant Lyle, also known as Crusher, to take Jack to the old props tent and then to visit Greg in person. On their way out, Jack had an apparently innocuous encounter with an attractive young woman who literally bumps into him. The rude woman tells him to watch himself and walks away. Lyle takes Jack to the tent, and as he enters, he is attacked in nightmarish fashion by the entire freak show. Jack attempts to get away without hurting anyone, but is forced to defend himself. Octavia calls to him again, but he soon finds himself thrown through the tent. Now outside, he barely manages to avoid being crushed by Crusher and makes a run for it. A savage chimpanzee clawing at his back. Literally, a monkey on his back. Despite playing a hero for his father, Jack has yet to see himself as one and runs as far away as possible to a nearby field. There he lays and catches his breath, deciding once again he has to go back. He returns to his apartment and as he enters seems to have another vision, this time of a pirate. But this vision has a familiar smell of lime, sea salt, and caraway, a smell Jack encountered on one of his first nights at Starman. In his home, Jack dons his jacket and goggles. He must go back to free the blue man. He remembers how his father told him that weirdness will find him. As he lights up his cosmic rod, he declares, it's going to wish it never met me. I really like the cover on this one. It's gorgeous. Of course, all Tony Harris's covers uh-huh. are good. That, I mean... The covers throughout this series really drew me in. Right, right. But it's it's kind of interesting. The characters are intriguing, but he uses like a lighter palette. It's There's not as many heavy blacks in it as, mm-hmm. as usual. What I like about his covers is so many times you see the cover on a comic book and it's kind of a bait and switch. Yeah. Harris's covers actually are what's depicted, what are shown in the comic, and I appreciate that. Even if it's symbolic, it's there. Right, exactly, and I I appreciate that. It's not your typical comic bait-and-switch. So I love the opening bit. You know, Robinson's fleshing out the character of Opal by placing it in an equally bizarre county, Mm -hmm. and, you know, just the idea that, you know, you drive out of the city and there's no suburbs. It's just, bam, you're in the country. Right, right. It's like the... It's like the people in the city didn't venture, didn't dare venture out into Turk County, really. You know? I mean, it's it's truly its own microcosm. It's right. Just, that's all it is. Right. And as collectors of toys and, and collectibles and things like that, you can identify with with what Jack is is talking about. You meet some interesting folks along the way. But this ever go on the mile long, uh, the four hundred mile yard 
excuse me, the 400 mile yard sale. Yes. You talk about meeting some interesting people. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, you you do run into some some interest, and sometimes you and sometimes you get more information than you want uh-huh. about things. Well, that belonged to so and so. That was his blah blah blah, and this and that and that. that. No, his wife died, and blah blah. No, I mean, I'll just you know just you know I kept that in the attic for years, and I mean just all sorts of. So this is kind of like a dark version of that. It's like a twisted version of American Pickers. Yeah, yeah. So it's a kind of ahead of its time with all those mm-hmm. type of shows that are on nowadays. You can, of course, you can imagine that these people talk without moving their lips. Uh-huh. We know people like that, talk like that, don't move the lips, just kind of talk like that, not move my lips right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm thinking of a particular person that Christopher and I know, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm about to lose it. I could see him in this book. Anyway. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> The guy with the Fenton glass in particular is just damn creepy. You you see a visual of what Jack is thinking of with a skeleton with an axe through its skull, like in the basement. Yeah. It's it's very effective. Yeah. Norman Bates is shorter. Yeah, mm-hmm. mother mother and her Fenton glass. When Jack But he is, still does business with him, he yeah. still takes it. I'll business. take your glass, dude. Yeah. Uh doesn't come back as Storm. What what I think's hilarious is like if any other superhero had encountered a guy like this they would have skulked back later that night and looked around. Right, just you know, to, to see what was going on. With Jack, it's like, okay, I'm not getting in the middle of this. this. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much this whole book. You know, yeah. it's like, and we'll get into that later. You know, it's it, it, it just shows you how, I mean, he, he does exactly what he said he would do. He, he's going to be Starman when the city needs him, but he's not going out looking for trouble. Right. You know, when, when, the, when the city needs Starman, he'll be there, but he's not going to be on patrol and... Yeah. investigating things outside of what, you know, if it blows up in the city, he'll go check it out. But if it's... He's you know, going to respond to, not look for. Yeah, he's going to be very reactive, mm-hmm. not proactive, yeah. So when Jack enters the circus, we see a double-page spread on page four and five. And the circus goers have to be friends. Oh, yeah. The details are too clear, too. Yeah, they're too, the people yeah. are too distinctive. Mm-hmm. I think one of them may be Robinson. Jack already looks like Tony Harris. It looks like Archie Goodwin and Chuck Kim are in attendance there because I know what Archie Goodwin looks like, and I'm assuming the guy with him is kind of a Asian American looking guy. I'm assuming that's Chuck Kim. So, you know, I'm glad Jack brings up Freaks. I don't think I had seen that movie when I got this comic off the stands, but I knew of it. Right. I knew what it was. Because I think the first time I saw it was within the last ten years. Yeah, me fairly too. recently. Yes, and 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 Rob Kelly recently uh, covered Freaks on uh, the Film and Water podcast. Oh, okay. So you can go check that out. Which Film and Water's uh, I'm really enjoying what Rob's doing over there. Of course, I've been on there a couple times, but that's not why I'm enjoying it. I, he he did a he did his own Halloween series of of movies uh, over there, and and they were all uh, a whole lot of fun. So several I hadn't seen before, but it made me or I hadn't to seen go it seek them out. When was seeing it, including Creep Show, uh, which a complaint here, time. Uh, sorry, this is totally off topic, but so Rob talks about Creep Show. And I can't remember who his guest was on. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having one of those fuzzy days. Fuzzy days. So uh, he was talking about Creep Show, and so I'm like, I haven't seen Creep Show in years. I'm gonna go out and get the DVD. Well, Amazon had it for like four bucks or something. Yeah. It was super cheap. So I order it. And I was like, Well, I hope it comes in in time for Halloween. Well, it does. It's like comes in on like the Tuesday before Halloween, and so I'm gonna like sit down and watch it Thursday night. 
Open it up. There's no disc inside. No. I was just like, <laughs> he's like, there's no disc. I'm like, what did you, I said, did you already take it out? And, no, I just opened them. Insert explicative here. Plastic. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's, there's nothing in there, so. Yep. So, yay. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't think, back into Starman, I don't think we're spoiling anything here by saying that the blue cosmic geek is the 70s Starman mm-hmm. from the one appearance in first issue comics number 12. From March of 1976, at the end of the the first story arc, they showed him mm-hmm. in the circus, you know, and it said he he once was Starman, you know. So this is obviously that same character. One of the images that Jack sees when Michael, the Blue Starman, touches his mind is a redraw of the cover of that first issue comic by Joe Kubert. So. So we're getting we're getting snippets of his life from that comic and beyond it, mm-hmm. because that was his only appearance before this series. So, again, Jack's meeting with Mister Bliss is very telling. His first order of business is about the deal. It's like right. you got any old posters, props, things like mm-hmm. that. Oh, and what about that guy you got chained up? What's up with that? Yeah, <laughs> but that could also be seen as you know trying to break you know, the do ice. the sandwich deal. Yeah, you know, you start with good, you. Sandwich the bad, you end with the good, you know, so. Well, it could be, yeah. But his eyes get wide when Bliss mentions he has old posters, uh-huh. you know, so. You know, but he does, he dances, he dances around asking Bliss outright if the blue man is a prisoner. Uh-huh. And and Bliss does a hell of a job about lying about it, but, yeah. It's kind of weird. Crusher is actually more freakish than the freaks. He's, his upper body is like Hulk size, and he's got little tiny legs. He's like a. Over-exaggerated Bruce Tim design. Yeah, well, yeah. He's kind of yeah. like Bane, you know, yeah. the, the animated Bane with this, like, huge frame, sh- upper body, and then tiny little legs. So, just put a pin in this. Jack bumps into the rude girl. This will be important later. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> quite a bit. Quite a bit. So, I mean, I don't think we're saying anything that you can tell it's going to be important later, but it's like, yeah, it's going to be more important than you even think later. Which, again, we won't try to spoil ahead too much. We'll just say... Remember this, so when we mention it, you can say, oh, yeah, they said that back in, way back. Four know, years ago. Four years ago, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> the scene where the freaks attack Jack is, well, pretty freaky. I mean, it's kind of scary. It's all colored in dark hues of green and purple, and you've got Finnegan surrounding Jack. He's got a domed helmet in the air tank, Octavia. Uh-huh. Max, the Nazi doll boy, and a scary clown with vampire fangs, which I've never quite figured yeah. out. And a bunch of assorted, nondescript, little demonic little things. I'm like, so, what is that? Yeah, the the clown with the vampire teeth kind of reminds me of something from the Island of Misfit Toys. Mm. You know, it's just two things that don't go together or something. Yep. <laughs> One of these things is not like the other. A cowboy that rides an ostrich! <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he cracks Finnegan's helmet and knees the clown in the face, which is nice. But uh, as he runs out, but, uh, you know, despite not thinking he's a hero, Jack immediately plans to go back. Mm-hmm. So now he's armed. So he's going to go back to save the cosmic geek. So that, that actually does sound pretty heroic to me. Right. Despite himself, you know, which, you know, like we said, when it when it comes down to it, he does the right thing. But he's just not as proactive as, as other superheroes would be. So uh, you got anything else on this one? Mm-mm. So we'll jump into part two of this story uh, from Starman number eight from June 1995 on sale April 18th, 1995. And the cover painting is, of course, again by Harris. It shows Jack in the arms of Octavia 
who is only draped in a red piece of material covering her naughty bits. Jack is knocked out cold or possessed because his eyes are completely white like they're rolled up in his head. Right. Which is just kind of odd looking. Behind them looms a demonic looking figure. Uh, he's got blue skin. He's got a big curly mustache. Eh, eh. And a misty energy is emanating from his mouth. A Night at the Circus Part 2. Again, night spelled the same way as before. It's the same creative team as last issue. Having returned to the circus, Jack laments his previous bravado. Despite his heroic speech, he has no idea what he's going to do. As he skulks in the shadow of the tents, he hears a voice call his name. Octavia's tentacles ensnare him as her friends take his rod. They spirit Jack away. Jack awakens in a tent surrounded by the freak show cast. Octavia apologizes to a stunned Jack. They did not wish to harm him earlier that night. They were compelled to do so by the mental command of Mr. Bliss, who uses his supernatural powers to keep them prisoner in his circus. Octavia warns Jack that Bliss is not human. Max, the Nazi doll boy, also apologizes for his behavior, stating that, I'm not the bad dwarf. No, I'm not. The bad is somewhere else. Octavia explains that Max was once the smartest man she ever knew, operating the Memory Master show under the name The Pocket Encyclopedia. A chance encounter with this bad dwarf in Vienna left him with the reasoning of a child. Jack interrupts her story, wanting to get back to the problem at hand, Mr. Bliss. The tentacled woman reveals that Bliss is an incubus, a demon who feeds on human emotion. He savors the particular pain felt by special people. He keeps his freaks prisoner, feeding on their sorrow, which in turn makes him more powerful and more able to hold them in his thrall. Bliss has maintained his circus since the 1930s, bringing in new prisoners as his old ones die slowly in a withering, draining, dying process. Bliss enjoys tormenting his prisoners, such as dressing the Jewish Renee as a Nazi and making the body-conscious Octavia parade around in a skimpy bikini and nothing else. Bliss prizes the blue alien named Michael most of all. Despite being held the longest, something about his physiology has allowed him to outlive all the other prisoners. His powers weakened while he sleeps, Octavia was able to grab Jack, but still they can't escape. Some of her friends are in a constant trance, such as Maggie the Saffron Snail, who is near death. Octavia has used her low-level telepathy powers to read Jack's mind earlier that night, hoping that he would help them. Jack prepares to confront Bliss, but Octavia cautions that he should get help first. The decision is taken out of their hands as they hear an angry scream rumble through the campgrounds, and the prisoners writhe in pain. It is Bliss, and he is awake. Jack's resolve is not shaken by this, vowing to put the monster back to sleep, despite not being his father's old friend, Sandman Wesley Dodds. Meanwhile, in Opal, two interludes. The first finds Matthew O'Dare in restless sleep in his nice apartment on Noodle Avenue. O'Dare affords his lavish accommodations by being a dirty cop, despite his proud family lineage. As he lies next to the prostitute he picked up for the evening, his mind is awash in feverish dreams. He sees images of a lawman in Opal City's past, a man named Brian Savage. Put a pen in it. Yes. At that same time, on a darkened Opal street, a demon from a poster comes to life and drags an innocent man inside its portal. Back at the circus, Jack moves towards Bliss's trailer. He agrees with Octavia that he should get help first, but he fears Bliss may pull up stakes and be gone by the time he gets back. He questions his motivations for getting involved. Is it his deal with his father to play the hero? Is it shame for gawking at the freaks earlier? He recalls hearing of a superhero team that once gave their lives for a village of 14 people. 
He thinks maybe this small group of special people may be worth dying for. Then he thinks differently and panics. He thinks he should run away. As his nerve returns, he comes upon Bliss himself. Bliss recalls why he knew the name of Jack Knight. He remembers his friend Johnny Sorrow once fought Jack's father, Ted. Then he leaps from his trailer as his body begins to change into its demon form. He strikes a startled Jack who responds by blasting him with the cosmic rod. The blast seemed to do little damage, but Jack fires on. The entranced circus folk watch the spectacle before them, a small feeling growing within each of them, but more so in certain others. Jack fights back against his own fears and presses on, quickly dispatching Crusher when he joins the fray. If he is to die, Jack is going to take Bliss with him, and he refuses to let him know the fear he is hiding. As hope grows in the crowd, a light begins to pulse in the jewel on Michael's chest. Speaking in his alien tongue, he suddenly rises into the air and emits an energy blast from the jewel directly at Bliss. Jack joins in, and soon even the powerful demon cannot withstand the barrage. Weakened by the hope his victims feel, the dying demon asks why his children have forsaken him and disappears into a swirling vortex. Jack and Michael land, and the blue man places his hand on Jack's shoulder in friendship. Despite not knowing the alien language he speaks, Jack answers, No, no, I'm Starsky and you're Hutch. Bliss's former prisoners rally around their new hero, shouting, We're free! As he is lauded with praise, Jack thinks he has to be hard about this. He must demand the old circus props and posters in return for his good deed. He can't be what his father wants him to be, a hero for hero's sake. But he does admit, it sure feels good. Yes. This cover is interesting because Octavia is in an outfit we never see her in. And she has this odd, detached look on her face as she looks up. And Jack does look possessed. His eyes are rolled up in his head. But uh, Bliss is appropriately scary. I mean, I still like it, but it's just it's just a little odd. Yeah. Now, I do have one thing. Why did Jack change his shirt from last issue? Because part one ended with Jack in a red-orange t-shirt, but... That was the same night, and as we re-enter this, this story here, he has on a black and white striped, like almost like a referee shirt with laces on it. So, I wonder why they... <laughs> I almost think, you know, it wasn't very far. Maybe he went back and got, you know, he had to go get his rod and get on. Yeah, but I mean, he it showed him at the end, with the he had his jacket on, he had the rod, he had the goggles on, and he had a red-orange t-shirt on. So, you... He's already dressed as Starman, and he goes to the circus, but he like decided to go back. Oh, wait, I'm going to change my shirt. <laughs> but he might have had to change of clothes in the car. Yeah, but I mean, why wouldn't he just have changed there? I don't want to go on about this too long. I'm just saying it's a continuity error. Okay. <laughs> they, goof, anyway. they goofed up. You got to love that Jack instantly regrets his chest-thumping speech from last issue. He's like... You know, he's like, they're going to be sorry they ever met me. And then in this one, he's like, oh, crap, what am I going to do? Why am I doing this? You know, right. it's like, why don't I just move on? The little freaky demon things from last issue are laughing at Jack as Octavia abducts him. What are those things? I mean, I don't know, I don't know what those things are. It's like, wow. I mean, some most of the freaks have like a, you know, an analogy with like real life, you know, real life human oddities or right. or something. But you know, I mean, obviously, some of them are pretty extreme, like Finnegan, but, you know, we are in the DC universe. But, yeah, those things are just straight out of little, little demon things, like the things from Night on Bald Mountain yeah. or something, yeah. You know, Octavia explains the situation to Jack. We see other freaks. We see, a, like I said, we see a human skeleton. We see a man that has no lips. 
um, and, and other characters. And we'll see more throughout the, the issue as it goes along. Max, the or Renee, the, the dwarf, he mentions the bad dwarf. And, and that'll the, come up again. Yes, much later in the series, but it will come up again. Octavia says Michael has been there since 1985, so 10 years real-time at this point. Mm -hmm. And this series kind of tries to deal with real-time as best it can within, while still being in the, the DC the universe. universe. Yeah. Right. So our interlude uh, has Matt O'Dare dreaming about Brian Savage. I have to admit, with the visuals they used, I didn't get who he was at this point. It... Later, on one of the other issues we're discussing this time, I will. But at this point, I'm like, who are they talking about? Right. So, it didn't ring a bell. So, so we got more of the poster plot line again. But that's going to come up again later. But it's we're quite a ways off from, from resolution there. Oh, yeah. Did you get who the super team was that Jack was talking oh, about? Oh, yeah, the Outsiders. No. No, the... Oh, Changeling and Doom Patrol. Yeah, Shit. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Outsiders would have been a good name for them, actually. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but... Yeah, you're right, yeah, yeah. Doom Patrol, I knew exactly who they were talking about. Uh, that's that's good, yeah, because, I mean, he just says, he mentions it's like, there was one guy, one of the guys had bandages, so he's talking mm -hmm. about Negative Man, but yeah, it's doubly ironic in this issue because they were considered freaks. freaks. You know, so... Yeah. Even among superheroes, they were considered freaks. Right, yeah. Which I never have understood why Elastigirl was a freak. Because she could just, you know, she was a movie starlet that could look normal when she yeah. wanted to. I didn't, but I guess because... I think they tried to explain later, it was like, she didn't feel normal anymore. Mm. You know, that was more it. Jack's heroic mental monologue is interrupted by a moment of panic. Uh, this is another reason why I love this book. I mean, he's heading toward Bliss's tent. And he's like, what am I doing? What? You know, he's yeah. like, he's all like, I'm going to, there might be worth dying for. And it's like, oh wait, what the crap am I saying? I don't want to die. Yes. <laughs> uh, he has the same foibles and fears that all of us do, which is, you know, pretty refreshing. So Bliss mentions Johnny Sorrow. Now this is a creation of Robinson, not an actual golden age villain, but we will meet him eventually, but just not in the Starman comic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Bliss is kind of nasty looking, but he still has got that swirly mustache. So, we get a tiny armed freak as well, and there's that weird ass clown with vampire teeth, and we get a dog faced boy slash werewolf thing. looking thing. Yeah. yeah, person. Shouldn't say thing, that's insensitive. Person. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, Crusher is no match for Jack with the cosmic rod. I mean, he blasts him one time, that's the end of him. Mm -hmm. So, I like that. And then, of course, Michael takes to the sky and uses his power, so we get our first Starman team-up in the title. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not the last one we'll get. So, again, we're, we're beating this with a hammer, but Jack's worrying about being too heroic uh, at the end, you know, doing the hero's work for goodness sake, you know. Right. That's a funny bit in a superhero comic, mm -hmm. you know. These issues are the one I think about when I think about the book early in the run, other than the first storyline, because... It it is it does have that weird almost vertigo kind of vibe to mm -hmm. it, but it's still in the DC universe. This kind of cemented the tone of the and direction of the book for me. What did you think about it? I, I thought the same thing. It's one of those you're like he's one of those characters that he almost belongs under the vertigo mm -hmm. titles, but he's in DC and it's just he's the bridge between them. He's got elements of both. Right. I mean, early on the Vertigo, the books that became the Vertigo titles, some of them, 
we're definitely tied into the DC universe. Right, I mean, right. The Sandman series, Swamp Thing, obviously, Hellblazer. But as time went along and they became Vertigo, they kind of distanced themselves more and more. Mm -hmm. So you had Starman as kind of a, a strange little quirky... It was definitely in the shadow of the DC universe, you know. Mm -hmm. It was in that kind of strange... And it wasn't just gritty and... and and you know, violent or anything, but it had that like a very weird atmosphere about it. So, and that's I think that's one reason why these issues leap out at me so much. So we'll actually uh, jump into uh, Starman number nine now. That's from July nineteen ninety five. That's the cover date. It was on sale May sixteenth nineteen ninety five. Uh, again, the cover's painted by Harris. Broken record it shows Jack recoiling from a burning drum with a radioactive symbol on it. Jack is wearing his goggles and a long coat with no shirt. Behind him stands Ted, his father, who is looking at his son and stroking his chin in thought. A jack-o'-lantern-like face seems to be rising from the flames. Shards, name of the story, is by the same creative team as the last two issues. We begin in the scene we last left with Jack celebrating with the freed circus folk. We are told Jack returned to the circus twice. First, to collect Michael and take him to his father for study and therapy in the hopes he could remember his past, including his grasp of the English language. From the Shades Journal, Jack had learned that Michael had once lived in Opal and, due to his alien origins, was known as Starman. On his second trip, we learned from Octavia that the local landlord had agreed to let the circus folk remain on his land permanently for a nominal fee. Jack and Octavia talked and drank up into the night and made love. They parted as friends when Octavia told Jack this was a one-time thing and Jack returned to his life in the Opal. A life that involves breaking up armed robberies. As Jack blasts away with his cosmic rod, all he can think of is how he should have bought the, that carpet from the 30s he passed on. Jack is describing the encounter with his father Ted in his observatory and admits he likes knowing those criminals are off of his streets. Ted understands, but he can't understand why Jack is wearing that shirt again. Jack looks down at his red, long-sleeved t-shirt adorned with a face that resembles Raggedy Ann or Andy or a scarecrow. Jack apologizes, saying he just forgot that he had it on, but asks as Starman to know why the image rattles his dad so. Jack knows it is not Raggedy Ann or the scarecrow from Oz. It's the ragdoll, Opal City's Charlie Manson. He tells his father the image doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just a hip icon, but it means more to Ted. Ragdoll was a petty costume thief until he turned into a cult-leading messiah 13 years ago. The carnage grew to the point that Ted called in his old friends from the Justice Society of America, Green Lantern, Flash, Iron Man, and Dr. Midnight, who joined Starman in stopping Ragdoll's mad plans. But the villain vowed to rule his minions from prison and threaten the families and loved ones of the heroes, including young Jack and his brother David. In the confusion, Ragdoll was killed. Ted admits to feeling guilty, much as he does for helping to develop the atom bomb. Jack tells his father that while he vowed to never kill again after avenging his brother's death, he would break that promise if someone threatened Ted in a heartbeat. Later that night, a patrolman is drawn into the portal poster. A bald man in a scarf retrieves the poster and skulks away. Shortly thereafter, the shade arrives on the scene and observes. The next day, Jack makes his rounds, bartering for old telephones, loud clothing, dusty books, and even a cup of coffee. Matthew O'Dare is making his rounds, extorting money, tampering with evidence, and meeting with unsavory underworld types. 
All the time he sees images of a man dressed like a Native American and the battles he fought. The man's voice condemns Odair's actions. But where does this voice come from? Why is it plaguing him? In her prison cell, Nash, daughter of the mist, contemplates how she has changed since Jack murdered her brother and her father suffered a complete mental breakdown. Is she a villainess? Not yet. A killer? Not yet either. But she has become a seductress. She has seduced both staff and inmate, both men and women, into giving her information or trust to exploit. Now she was bored. When the guards check her cell later that night, they find it empty. Nash has escaped, leaving behind messages scrawled into her cell walls. Jack is to blame. Die, Starman, and a note. Wait and see what I become. Jack sits in his apartment and watches his beloved old movies, unaware of Nash's escape and how the next 24 hours will change his life. There's a Shades journal at the back of this issue. Um, you know, it's a text text piece. We get those every once in a while. It details the Shades' thoughts on the rise of the heroes of the Golden Age, particularly Starman. He finds Starman to be no Brian Savage, he says, uh, in his first entry from November 20th, 1939. But he has a slight change of heart the following year uh, when Starman rescues the occupants of the Gladstone Towers set ablaze by Johnny Sorrow. There's that name again. Despite his earlier assessment, Starman is a hero in the Shades' eyes, but he could be a hero anywhere. He isn't committed to Opal like Brian Savage was, but he says he'll do until some someone better comes along. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because they pushed Starman's... Uh, Starman didn't start until 40, 41, I think, in Adventure Comics. So they, they pushed him... Yeah, he was... Might have been late forty. It was forty forty one. So they made him appear a little bit earlier, which is kind of interesting because you think they'd go the opposite direction, right? I mean, in comics, they always age him up rather yeah, than back, right? But at, I think it was they were trying to say that he operated in Opal before the world really knew about him. Basically, right. that he was kind of a hometown hero till he joined the JSA. Mm-hmm. So, so in the comic itself, we learn Michael is to be cared for by Jack and Ted. So, three star men. Mm-hmm. And Jack slept with the octopus woman. <laughs> you know. And he poured the store, man. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, I remember being pretty stunned by this. I mean, this is not the kind of thing you'd see most superheroes do. No. They wouldn't just sleep with anybody, let alone. Wouldn't, there would be no illusion or depiction, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, as Shag would say, though, you know, despite the tentacles, she is kind of hot. So, ow. <laughs> I see that coming. That really hurt. Ow. <laughs> Damn it. Oh. How? I said, as Shag would say, hit Shag, not me. You're here. God. <laughs> Next time, get join us when we get together so you can hit him. <laughs> uh, the scene with Jack and the robbers is, is genius. You know, it gets you some action in the book. So, you know, there's it's not all talking heads. So there's an action sequence. Uh, it helps segue into the ragdoll story, but also reaffirms Jack's personality. He really was more concerned with the fact that he let that carpet go. Yeah, I mean, that was secondary. He yeah. wasn't really paying attention to fighting he's, the robbers. He's, he's just, flying yeah. through the air, kicking them in the head, blasting them with the cosmic rod. They're, they've got guns shooting at him, yeah. and he's like, man, I really wish I'd got that carpet. I should have got that carpet. <laughs> so, Ragdoll debuted in Flash Comics number 36 from December 1942. He only made one Golden Age appearance in that issue, and he resurfaced in, in one of the double Flash stories 
uh, with Barry Allen and Jay Garrick in Flash number 229 from September, October 1974. So he was in limbo for a long time. Mm -hmm. After that, he popped up uh, periodically, not very often, but he was in the Secret Society of Supervillains with The Mist in Justice League of America number 195 through 197, which is probably why Robinson co-opted him for Starman, I'd bet, because mm -hmm. there he was with The Mist. Right. Because The Mist didn't get used that often either. So he probably was like looking, you know, I'm, I don't know this, but my way my head's thinking is he was looking for stories with the mess, and it's like, ooh, ooh Ragdoll. Yeah. yeah, Ragdoll, yeah. So, and Robinson also, I just now thought of this, he wrote a Superman story in um, Le Legends of the DC Universe book that was out in the mid-90s that was like a rotating, it was like rotating creators, rotating characters. Mm -hmm. He did a Superman story that introduced the modern post-crisis version of the ultra humanite that uh for superman to fight because the ultra humanite was originally a superman villain oh. and ultra humanites in that he's the leader of that secret society of supervillains you know the guy you like that's you know the albino ape you know, hey, you know. <laughs> i still it remember just... that <laughs> what on justice league i don't blame you you know so you know on justice league he you know, I, I do my deed, I did my time, but, you know, we're going to bring culture to children, you know? Yeah. And as far as him being an albino ape, <laughs> I'm I'm pointing at him in a very characteristic, uh, hello, yeah, fashion. Right, nice. <laughs> it is a bit, you know, it is a bit cavalier for Jack to wear a shirt with a murderous cult leader oh, on yeah, it. Oh, yeah, I... Mm. Yeah, I know he explains within the story that Axl Rose had recently worn a Charlie Manson shirt. But it's not, again, that's not something a superhero would no. normally do. And I mean, I, you just don't do that. It's not... Yeah, I mean, but that's kind of like... Uh, yeah, I, I can definitely see why Ted would be upset with it, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, we didn't get a lot of details of the JSA's mission against Ragdoll's cult, but just hang on to the end of the episode. There'll be more about that. Right. It really bothers me. I know! Oh my god! Throughout this issue, Alan Scott's name is misspelled. It's spelled A L L E N. Rather than A L A N. Yeah, which like, is correct. it's like Barry Allen. Right. Instead of Allen, like a first name. Yeah. It so bothered me through this issue. I think there was one issue where they spelled Jay Garrick's name wrong, too. And I can't remember what they how they called it, but it was it was one of those I don't know if it was in Starman or an early JSA that Robson was involved in. It's like, oh but anyway. Uh, again, we get references to Ted helping with the atom bomb, which is straight out of the out of continuity everywhere else Robinson series, The Golden Age. So, uh, clearly, a good chunk of The Golden Age is in continuity in the Starman comic. Maybe not all of it, but right. I hope not all of it, because some of the heroes in that toward the end ugh, did not act very heroic. Yeah. <laughs> Love that book, but yeah. The poster strikes again, and we see the mysterious bald man with the scarf. Again. Again. But this time the shade is on to him, so, hmm, hmm, you know. Jack haggles all day, even for coffee, but it doesn't work. Yeah. I think that's funny. Now, now this time, because Tony Harris drew him right, I recognize the American Indian character that Matt O'Dare is dreaming about. He's on model here. I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but if you read old DC Western comics in the 70s and 80s, you know him. And no, it's not Jonah Hex, obviously. Right. No. <laughs> Which, that would have been cool if it was Jonah Hex was involved, but he's not, uh, unfortunately. Because uh, everybody loves Jonah Hex. 
So Nash has learned the art of seduction. This is a far cry from the sheltered, shy, stuttering girl that we saw at the beginning of the, the series. Right. That let Jack go that night, you know. Yeah. And then she, that's, you know, she regrets it because she let him go and he killed her brother. But he and, killed his. Yeah, well, I know, but that's, and then there's that whole weird, like you said, flowers in the attic thing going on with those two. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, uh, this will not end well for Jack. No. Uh, I like the idea of the Shades Journal text pieces, but the font is so tiny. Oh, and they I put just... it on that dark background. It's on an old aged paper background, and it is hard to read. I'll be honest. I left it to you to read. I'm like, hey, you can tell me that. I, you know, I used to, I would, when I, I wanted to read them because you needed them for the book, but I remember when I used to see them, I'd be like, oh, and all it had to do was the printing. It, it's not the printing uh, quality of Star, the Starman comics good, but it's just like, it's just, it's too dark. It's like they got a little too artsy-fartsy for their own good. It's like in the Avengers comic of the time. Oh, yeah. When George Kurt Busiek and George Perez relaunched. Mm-hmm. When they had Thor in that freaking, font. that font, all his dialogue. You couldn't read the damn thing. It's like, what? I just skipped Thor's dialogue and just said, well, he probably said forsooth and, and yay, Odin's son and blah, 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 and went on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's like, I can't be bothered to read this. It's giving me eye strain. So, well, I think we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll cover two more issues of Starman. See, two more issues. Five issues, Shag and Ryan. <laughs> hey, hey, go! Wait, you like movies? Yeah, I love to talk, film, discuss, to critique. You want to see a film with me? <laughs> and Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new, hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water Podcast is part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts, available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. So we're going to be working together? Really? Worst film you ever saw? Well, my next one will be better. Okay, we're back. And we're going to talk about Starman number 10 from uh, cover dated August 1995 on sale June 20th, 1995. Again, from Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Uh, the painted cover. Who's it by? Take a guess. Harris. Tony Harris, yes. And it shows Jack in a sewer battling Solomon Grundy! No. <laughs> <laughs> The Day Before the Day to Come is by writer James Robinson, penciler Tony Harris, inker Wade Von Graubadger, Von Graubadger, letterer Gaspar <laughs> Saldino. They didn't have Saldino in there, but I know that's who that is. Colorist Gregory Wright, assistant editor Chuck Kim, editor Archie Goodwin, and I think the only difference is the letterer is now Gaspar, so that's why mm. I went through all that. 
Jack has an unexpected and unwelcome visit from the Shade. The man in black has information Jack doesn't want to hear of a new evil, new to Opal anyway. Jack is more concerned with Nash's recent escape, which he just learned of, but the Shade relays his tale of woe anyway. The Shade tells Jack of his old friend Oscar Wilde and how the author wrote about another immortal he had met. He based his work, The Portrait of Dorian Gray, on this immortal named Merritt. Unlike Wilde's character, whose portrait aged instead of his body, Merritt gained his immortality by protecting the portal of his demon benefactor. That portal was a poster with an ever-changing image. The Shade has kept track of this immortal and one other, but Jack doesn't want to know about that one. Merritt uses the portal to eliminate persons for a fee, so the Shade heads to Central City to check out his last known client. A reluctant Jack agrees to confer with Shade on his findings when he returns. In his journal, Ted Knight writes of his efforts to reach the mind of the blue alien known as Mikhail Thomas, the blue alien Jack freed from Mr. Bliss's circus prison. Much to his dismay, all of Ted's methods, both scientific and grounded, have failed. That is, until Michael abruptly says the name of R&B singer Teddy Pendergrass. The escaped Nash makes her way to one of her father's old hideouts. There she spies some of his old equipment with the intention of becoming more. Meanwhile, Jack stops by the shop of Charity, the fortune teller. Jack wants to thank her for her help a few weeks back and also see if she can see into his future as he feels something is brewing. Charity has another client at the moment and Jack meets Sadie Falk. Or rather, he meets her again as she was the rude woman he bumped into at the circus earlier. She continues her rude behavior by telling Jack to keep out of her way. As Jack contemplates Sadie's potential female issues in his apartment later, and why is it, I'm sorry, I gotta go ahead and interject this, just because a woman is rude does not mean she has her monthly. <laughs> I want to read that part in a minute, but go ahead. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> he receives a phone call from an unknown caller. It is Jenny Hayden Scott, a.k.a. Jay, daughter of the original Green Lantern. Although the two don't know each other, she has a favor to ask of Jack. As Jack finds himself skulking about Opal City sewers in his Starman gear, he remembers the rest of their conversation. How he was duped into saying yes by Jenny's pretty face and celebrity status. How she asked him to find an old friend of hers, the former foe of the JSA known as Solomon Grundy. Jenny had heard Grundy was in Opal, and since she was busy with her own superheroics, she asked Jack to find him for her. Jack does find the albino swamp monster the hard way. Grundy surprises Jack, grunting, No HURT! Jack loses his cosmic rod in the sewers, and as he searches for it, attempts to evade Grundy. The whole time his mind wanders back to the last time he did something stupid for a girl. He was eight years old and climbed to the top of the tallest oak tree in Opal just to impress Sally Purple. By the time he got to the top, she was long gone. Jack never forgave her. As he realizes he has found himself in the same situation again, he also finds his rod, and blasts Grundy. Grundy begins to cry. He asks Jack why he hurt him. The sobbing man-brute explains he was just trying to defend himself. Jack tells Grundy he has a friend who can look out for him for a while. Jack hopes his father will agree. The two walk off hand in hand. Nash emerges from her father's machinery, mist and smoke billowing from her body. Even though she didn't understand her father's instructions, she has succeeded. As our story draws to a close, we are told that tomorrow, a grand drama will begin. We see the players, Jack, Ted, The Shade, Matt O'Dare, Solomon Grundy, Michael Thomas, 
Popodair and her other brothers, and a man with a flaming skull, and Nash, who turns into a mist like her father, promising, Jack Knight, I'm going to give you such a big wet kiss, just you wait. Yeah. Solomon Grundy! There you go, Rob. <laughs> that was for you. Jack is only barely interested in the Shade's tale. He really doesn't want to get roped into this. No. You know, he's like, it's like, uh, you know, it's again, this is like, you know, nothing's happened yet. Don't bother me. <laughs> again, proactive, not being proactive here. Right. So we now know that Merritt, the poster man, is the other immortal that Oscar Wilde knew from that issue. I think it was issue number six. Uh-huh. But there is another that Shade keeps track of that he talks about. The bit with Ted and Michael is great. You get a series of vertical panels with their journal entry down the left side. They are all the same. You know, Ted's writing in his book and Michael's just sitting there. And except when Michael says, Teddy Pendergrass. <laughs> and Ted looks up dumbstruck. In case you don't know, Teddy Pendergrass was a big R&B star in the late 70s and 80s who was tragically paralyzed in a car accident in 1982. He founded his own uh, alliance to help those with spinal cord injuries, and he died in 2010. So, The Mist's old hideout is in an office with the name Willow the Wisp on the window, just in case you want to know. Oh, I, and I thought that was just a nice little tip of the hat, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we learned the name of Jack's rude friend, Sadie Falk. Remember that. Uh, <laughs> Jack's reaction is priceless. Before I read this, I just want to say... That the opinions of Jack Knight are not the opinions of Chris Franklin. I just think this is funny. You don't want to get hit again. Yeah. So Sadie, you know, Sadie basically, here's what Sadie says to Jack. If I happen to be unlucky enough to pass you again in a crowd, be more careful where you step. Or better still, hop on that cosmic broomstick of yours, take to the skies, and keep out of everyone's way. Do us all a favor. And Jack responds by going, I, 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 and then the next page he's back in his apartment. Man, oh man, what a bitch. I hope that was some menstrual thing. Hope to God that was. Don't punch me. I hope to God that was it. Man, if that was her on a good day, then one week in the month, hell is seriously a popping. <laughs> I'll dive down an alleyway if I ever see her coming. She has no fear of ever bumping into me, ever. Not ever. <laughs> I mean, again, this is not your superhero material, you know? <laughs> Again, as I said while we were reading this, just because a woman happens to be grouchy does not mean that's because of that. Yeah, but, I mean, that's the character. I mean, I can, I as established, you can see him reacting that way. I know, but I'm just, I'm just saying, speaking for all women everywhere, <laughs> he needs to shut the hell up. <laughs> oh. So, to get myself out of trouble, we'll move on. Uh, <laughs> Solomon Grunde, Solomon Grunde had befriended Jade in the Infinity Incorporated series. Uh, he actually became a pseudo-member of the team after having fought their parents in the JSA for years, particularly Jade's dad, Green Lantern. I mean, Solomon Grundy started out as a Green Lantern, Alan Scott villain. Uh, but he became enamored of Jade and, and followed her around. He was duped into accidentally killing Skyman, who was the former Star Spangled Kid, the original one, Sylvester Pemberton, in a cyclical nature as the Star Spangled Kid and Starman used Ted's cosmic technology. He had yeah. the cosmic rod at one time in the 70s and then had a cosmic converter belt. So that's actually the one that uh, the Miss Brother used in the first storyline. Remember he stole oh. it? Yeah. Uh, so Jack's story about Sally Purple takes a dark turn when he reveals she was killed by a drunk driver 
and Jack says he still didn't forgive her. That's just... That's incredibly harsh. It's, I mean, and you think about it, this was something that she did when she was eight. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's like, whoa, whoa. dude. <laughs> Grundy being a big baby was very unexpected. You know, his new attitude will actually become a plot line later. Mm-hmm. Is it? Did you catch this? There's one panel where Solomon Grundy's sobbing. He looks a lot like Gary Oldman. When Oldman was crying in, in Dracula, Dracula when, yeah. he, when when Mina sends him the note that says, "I can't see you anymore because yeah. she's running off to get married to True. Keanu." You know, yeah. and, <laughs> Doctor. But and, and he's sitting there. He's sitting there crying. He's got the half bat. He's got the bat face. Yeah, but he's still got. He's still dressed in the suit. And he's, which is you know the whole damn movie really. But it's. <laughs> We're not talking about the mo- that movie. We're talking about this comic. Now, we watched that. This, I know, and I like that I, movie. I like it, too, but I just, I think they go a little overboard with the sobby, blubby stuff in that movie. They could have it, they could have the, the that, that theme without going that far into the, the overblown romance part of it. Okay, moving on. Okay. Oy. Clearly, this is setting up the next major storyline. I mean, it's telling you, this is the next major storyline. But, oddly enough, before we get to the issue that starts that storyline, we're going to have a break in a Times Past story, which is really strange, which we'll get into that at the end of next, this next one. You got anything else on this one? Uh-uh. Okay, so Starman number 11 is, is cover dated September 1995, on sale July 18th, 1995, and again, the cover's by Tony Harris. This is pure awesome. We see headshots of a younger Ted Knight as Starman. With the cowl and the fin, along with the shade. Above them are figures of the Golden Age Flash, Our Man with his arms raised up like Rocky, and Green Lantern, Alan Scott. Below is the downright scary figure of the ragdoll, his hands covered in blood. Mm-hmm. The title is 13 Years Ago, Five Friends, A Tale of Times Past. James Robinson, writer. Matt Smith, penciler, inker, Doctor Who. He's always the doctor, and he always will be. Gregory Wright, colorist. Mm-hmm. Casper Saldino, letterer. Chuck Kim, assistant editor. Archie Goodwin, editor. Andrew just said, did you say Matt Smith? <laughs> Not that Matt Smith, but we'll get back into that. <laughs> His ears perked up. That's what? definitely what? Andrew's doctor for That's her. right. <laughs> okay. From the Shades Journal, we learn the story of a dark summer. The Shade was away battling the second Flash and helping Dr. Fate. But in Opal City, things were bloody. The ragdoll had been a third-rate foe of the original Flash, but was now an old man. His triple-jointed contortionist abilities now pained him. He discovered another talent, something perhaps inherited from his carnival barker father, public speaking. He spoke to the lost and lonely of Opal and became their leader. He led them to murder and mayhem, and the streets of Opal ran red with blood. The cult's crimes made little sense to the police or Starman Ted Knight, so the chaos and carnage grew, and then Ted swallowed his pride and called his friends. The Golden Age Flash, Jay Garrick, Green Lantern, Alan Scott, Our Man, Rex Tyler, and Dr. Midnight, Charles McNiter, answered the call of their old Justice Society teammate. Ted details the three problems the heroes face. The kidnapped twins who belong to Samuel Gilbert, a leading banker in Opal. He is to open the bank vaults to the ragdoll by tomorrow or the children die. The second problem is a retirement community called the Grail. The Ragdoll's army plans to attack it that night. The police are too overtaxed to properly defend it, but there's only one bridge into that area outside of the city. 
Dr. Midnight agrees to go after the twins. Iron Man will defend the bridge. Starman, Flash, and Green Lantern will go after problem number three, Ragdoll himself. Flash admits he never feared his old foe before, but they all agree the times are changing. Green Lantern tells of the new breed of criminals popping up in his own Gotham City and a new hero who challenges them, the Batman. Flash tells a funny tale of how he and GL defeated the gambler once. They laughed all the way home. Midnight asks if he's laughed much lately. Starman has a tip to the Ragdoll's whereabouts, which was mysteriously left in his lab. It's their only lead. The five heroes head out to their appointed quest. The Ragdoll's minions talk of how they will kill the twins when they get word that Ragdoll has his money. Suddenly they are enveloped in darkness. Using his natural night vision, Dr. Midnight navigates the smoke created by his blackout bombs and takes out the kidnappers one by one. As the Shade relates how Starman, Flash, and Green Lantern found the Ragdoll's hideout, he admits to leaving the clue for Ted Knight. But his reminiscences turn to the bridge heading out of Opal toward the Grail. Ragdoll's army marched across the bridge, but at the other end stood our man. The man of the hour ingested his Miraculo... Mir Miraculo. Miraculo pill, which gives him an hour of superhuman strength and agility. It only took him 59 minutes to battle the throng hurled at him. Back at Ragdoll's headquarters, the heroes there made quick work of the cult. It was Starman himself who captured the Ragdoll. Having called his police friend Bernie O'Dare, Starman feels it is over, but Ragdoll begs to differ. He pledges his disciples will carry out his orders from prison. He threatens Jay Garrick's wife. He threatens the employees of Alan Scott's Gotham Broadcasting Company. And he threatens the sons of Ted Knight. He is not the villain of old, and he will not be stopped as such. As the heroes stand stunned, the Ragdoll uses his old contortionist abilities to break his bonds and make his escape. In the melee to capture the man who has threatened those they love, the heroes become confused. The building erupts in bursts of green and cosmic power. When the smoke cleared, the Ragdoll was dead. As Starman, Flash, and Green Lantern stand over his smoking, shattered body, the Shade tells of how the investigation was a quick one. The maniac was stopped, his fate deserved, and his body was stolen from the morgue following afternoon. I love this cover. Uh, this wasn't long after the JSA was put out to pasture again in zero hour in a very callous and infuriating fashion. Uh, it was good to see them in their prime again, especially Iron Man, because him and Dr. Midnight died in zero hour, although Iron Man got better later. But where is Dr. Midnight? He's not on the cover. That's the only thing that's kind of like, what? The ragdoll looks sick. I mean, it's just like, like, Heath Ledger, Joker, scary, like 13 years before, uh, you know, and it's, yeah, yeah it's, it, he's really scary looking. Uh, it makes you wish Harris had drawn this issue. And as we said, Matt Smith did the art on this, uh, you know, he must have been really young, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> different Matt Smith. He does have a TARDIS after all. So. <laughs> but anyway. Joke's over, son. Yeah. You know, I hate to say that I don't care for the art that much it, it kind of suits the dark nature of the story but it's a little too mike mignola mike mignola wannabe you know it looks like you know you know who mike mignola is the hellboy guy this was smith's first comic work so i'm going to cut him some slack uh he did go on to do dc's day of judgment miniseries later that's the one where hal jordan become the specter great idea guys anyway and, and then the shade sarcasm yeah sarcasm yes and then that sh there's a Shade Dr. Fate story in Showcase 96 that he drew. So they actually... Reference that. Detail this story. I didn't... I never knew about that. 
until I was doing research on this, I'm like, wait a minute, because at that showcase, they did showcase in the 90s, and one year it was headlined by Batman characters. The next year it was Superman characters, and they'd alternate. And at some point, I just quit picking them up because they were kind of eh. But I had no idea this was in there. So now i got to find Showcase 96. Because, <laughs> you know, you have me at Dr. Fate and it connects to Starman. So I'm all about it. You know, I am not a big fan of when they take characters and darken them up. Mm -hmm. But the ragdoll works because, one, he was no one's favorite character. And he really hadn't made that many appearances. So there was not, there's not a whole lot, there wasn't a whole lot there, you know. So it doesn't bother me as much. Having, turn him into a, having him turn to murder and mayhem just to prove he's not a loser is even more disturbing than having him actually be crazy crazy. You know, right. it's like it's it's like he makes the decision. It's deliberate. It's deliberate. It's like, okay, I'm going to start doing this, and then I'll get noticed. Uh -huh. You know, that's that's even worse because at least if he was like, demented in that direction you could say well he can't help it he's you know but obviously he made like you said he made the decision that he's deliberate so the timeline on this one is a little wonky i'm sure dc didn't want to admit that superman and batman had been around for 13 years at this point zero hour the year before i'd say they started about 10 years earlier but you know again robinson kind of plays fast and loose with the, the time he sent he he tends to cast everybody a little bit older than like some of the other creators would. One little nitpick for me is they say the Grail, the retirement community, is outside of the city. Mm -hmm. Well, they just set up just two episodes before that it's the city and no suburbs. <laughs> good point. <laughs> so, which is it? Good, good point. Good point. I mean, because that was the whole, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a good point. Yeah. Huh. Well, I guess it could just be like its own community. I mean, it's not, I guess it's not really a suburb, but I mean, you could, yeah. But they say community. Yeah, you're, well, you're right. Yeah. So is it or isn't it? I don't know. I guess, I mean, it's a retirement community. So, so yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's logic glass. Logic glass strikes again. Even though Dr. Midnight's not on the cover, they do give him a chance to shine on his own here, which is very rare. Mm -hmm. uh, he's definitely the Batman of the group here. He's kind of the more solemn one. He's, yeah. you know, he's oper very Batman-like tactics, which is which is interesting because they just did a covered uh, Shag and Della were on Secret Origins talking about Dr. Midnight, and they discussed how with Ryan, and uh, they discussed how um, you know Dr. Midnight was kind of all American comics version of Batman because you know you back then you had National and you had All-American and eventually they merged to become what we know as DC but uh, so he's he's very Batman like here Robinson had given our man a pretty prominent role in the Golden Age mm -hmm. and he characterized him as a very never die type character right. and he continues that here I mean he really I get the idea Robinson really liked our man he really made him you know cool he took on like a whole bridge of people which you think about it would have actually made more sense if they you know, if they had, they sent all the super-powered guys, the really super-powered guys after Ragdoll, couldn't Green Lantern have defended that bridge a lot easier with his power ring? Yeah. You know, of course, if they had a bunch of wooden sticks, he'd been in trouble. <laughs> this is true. But, but, I mean, it was, it was, you know, it's just the idea that our man stood on one side of the bridge, and as they came to him, he just beat the hell out of him until yeah. he beat him down. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Mowed through him until he took them all out. Yeah. So, that was cool. I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the art, but Smith does a really good job with the ragdoll. The panels 
where he threatens the heroes are very chilling. It's like a clo- closer and closer in on him. Right. It's it's really well done. The Golden Age heroes. It, it's interesting because they are. It's like they're they're recognizing that their world is is changing. It's getting darker, darker. and they are actually tarnished by this darkness because in they lose their their heroic you know resolve there for a minute and they get confused and then and they get desperate and then in their desperation they do something that they normally wouldn't do and the the villain gets killed right i think that's you know it's it's interesting because he the way robinson does it it he doesn't make it to where you know like you know ted just like coldly blasted him through the chest with his cosmic rod you know it's like Things just got out of hand. Right, and, and you don't know who exactly did it. I no, mean, you're you don't. left not knowing who delivered the killing blow. Right. As it were. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a, This is a simple story. It's a quick read, but it's a standout for me. You know, I can only imagine how it would have worked if, if Tony Harris had, had, had drawn it. But it makes me wonder where it where it falls into place. It's like it's so weird. It, it would have made more sense if this was issue number 10. If number... 10 and 11 swap places mm-hmm. because Ted mentions the, you know, he tells Jack about it in issue number nine. Right. The incident with I the thought, JSA. I was like, wait a minute. And like, I actually checked when I was reading. Make sure I didn't have them out of order. Yeah, because I was like, oh, wait, you know. It would have made more sense to put it there and then have the the prologue to the big storyline, which is in issue number 10 and uh-huh. issue number 11, and then 12, there's your story. You know? Right. But no, they didn't do it that way. But So it's kind of odd, but. So, Makes you wonder if maybe Harris got sick or got some other project. Somebody got going. behind and they already had that one in the can or something, and you mm-hmm. know, yeah, or, or the filling guy got behind, or maybe something. they had the, maybe they were going to have that be issue number ten, and they had maybe had another artist lined up, and that's why this new artist got to do it. See, oh yeah, and maybe he come in and save the day at the last minute. Your hungry young artist worked his ass off and got the comic in time. This is all speculation. Oh yeah, yeah, but it's just fun to. To, to think about but well so the next storyline is actually sins of the child mm-hmm. and it obviously involves nash you right know. when we get back to the starman chronicles we'll cover that storyline so we'll cover another five issues there mm-hmm. so see there you go <laughs> <laughs> so i'll do it for this episode of the starman chronicles and actually uh, before we close out i'd like to dedicate this episode to the memory of artist murphy anderson classic comic artist primarily for DC Comics, who passed away a few weeks ago. Mr. Anderson touched the character of Starman several times, most famously in the Brave and the Bold number 61 and 62, where editor Julius Schwartz and Gardner Fox, along with Anderson, teamed Starman with Black Canary. And uh, those are kind of famous team-up comics of the time. It was an experiment they were doing, teaming up two Golden Age characters together. They did the same thing with Our Man and Dr. Fate. But that was Starman's first chance to really shine huh? outside of the uh, JSA stories, the JLA-JSA team-ups, which actually Anderson inked the cover of Starman's uh, reintroduction in Justice League number 29. So he definitely had an involvement with the character. And uh, actually, uh, Ryan Daly, who I've been picking on this whole episode, where he and Shag were ragging on uh, me and Cindy for not doing a Starman episode, when uh, Shag was on Secret Origins, over on his Black Canary podcast, Flowers and Fishnets, Ryan's actually going to do a episode focusing on those Brave and the Bold issues, and he might have a guest that's in this room right now, so 
keep an ear out for that. That should be coming up later on in the month. Should be good. Thank you, Mr. Anderson, for, for all your work. It's um, it, Not only did it hit me as a comic fan, but as a toy collector, uh, because uh, Murphy Anderson provided the majority of the artwork for the Captain Action line from Ideal, uh, drew almost all the individual characters, Superman, Batman, Aquaman, Flash Gordon on the package, you know, the the Phantom, the Lone Ranger, and uh, he also uh, worked on the ideal play sets, like the Superman and Batman ones that they did. He did a lot of the, the licensing art that DC used as well, so he definitely had the DC Silver Age house style down pat, and it carried on even up and through the early 80s, so definitely a, a icon gone. So, uh, we got anything else on this? I think we're good. I mean, yeah. So, like we said, next time we'll do feedback. We'll have a special surprise segment that, uh, like I said, if you paid attention, you probably kind of know what it is. But uh, other than that, uh, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue my mommy and daddy. <laughs> Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at our at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermage Podcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. Now, baby, I know the difference between right and wrong. I ain't gonna do nothing. To upset our happy home. Oh, don't get so excited when I come home a little late at night. Cause we only act like children when we argue for the That should be so easy.